now we are not in Exodus. We are in Second Kings. And um, I, I felt like this was a, uh, an important message to give because we do have some new Christians. We have some people who um, have uh, recently joined the church. We have people who are, are exploring Christianity. And so in the message of the gospel <clears throat> is a, a message uh, that we all need to be washed. We all need to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus. And this story, this historical narrative uh, of Naaman the Syrian uh, going to Elisha, this story contains in it uh, metaphor and parable and uh, imagery which discusses and, and tells us about the nature of Christian baptism. And in the midst of this, there the gospel states that Naaman is powerless to do anything about that himself. So we're going to look at what that means for us as believers. We're going to look at this story in the context of redemptive history. Um, that's one of our big emphasis uh, emphases, I guess, that that all of all of the scriptures present or demonstrate they're the historical record of the unfolding plan of God to save the world. Uh, this is this is better than Superman. This is better than Batman. God is saving the world, and here's how he's doing it. That's what the scriptures have. There's an, a narrative arc. Do you know what a, a narrative arc is? There's a, there's a beginning point to the story. There's turmoil. There's change. There's dilemma. There's resolution, and it's going somewhere. God is going somewhere with redemptive history, and the Bible is the record of that going. And so we're going to look at what is happening, why it's important to see Naaman, not a Jew, uh, a Samar uh, sorry, a, a Syrian, uh, coming and recognizing the glory of the Lord in Israel. And so we're going we're gonna to fit that within the context of the larger history. We're going to look at Naaman as a parable, a narrative parable for the dead and fleshly man. That is, a, a man who is dead in his sins is unable to do anything about those sins. We're going to look at, what, at how this story presents that. Uh, we're also going to look at the washing that he receives and how it's a total washing. He's completely cleaned. And then finally, we're going to tie it in with the prophecy concerning Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God uh, in the context of John the Baptist's testimony. So as John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ and describes his role to the people of Israel, what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus and the washing that he gives over and against the washing that he gives. Uh, uh, sorry, that John John the Baptist gives. So that's going to be our, our uh, focus today. So uh, God is in the business of fulfilling his promises and his covenants. He has made promises and he is fulfilling them. He is working all things according to his pleasure to bring out his unfolded end. He is the one who sees the end from the beginning, declares a matter and states it from long ago. And so God has promised to Abraham through you, Abraham, all the families or all the nations, all the genas, uh, generas rather, uh, of the earth will be blessed. Every tribe, tongue, people will be blessed. And so God has a mighty task. I don't know about you. When I think of, you know, remodeling my house, that seems doable. But blessing all the families of the earth, that's a mighty task. And the idea that it would come through you or come through a person, as Abraham hears this, this is a mighty, mighty promise. This is not 
Abraham, through you, there will be geopolitical peace in a small state for a few generations. This is all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So how is God going to do this? When we hear God make a promise, we should instantly begin to, to ask, okay, how is he going to do this? How is he doing this? We should be looking for the signs in the scriptures of him beginning to fulfill that. And this is one of those stories. This is a story by which we see how God is highlighting Israel in such a way as to make her shine so that when Jesus Christ arrives on the scene, all nations will look to her. Uh, this is his desire. He wants to glorify Israel, and Jesus Christ, in that, through that glorification, will come at the right time, and he will shine like a diamond. Unfortunately, although God wishes to put glory on Israel, she turns over and over again, and it's more like a diamond on a setting of black felt rather than a diamond in the midst of a crown of jewels. That's the unfortunate scenario, but this is how it, it, it turns out. God wishes to glorify Israel and bring all the nations of the earth to recognize the glory of God on Israel. You see this take place when Solomon is setting up his kingdom and he's beginning to, to um, uh, establish the glory that he has in the order. And, and it says that when the queen of Sheba shows up, she's, she's seeing all this glory, all this the way that the temple is, is arrayed and the, the way that the king has set up everything. And she notices the way that the king has set up his table. And at that revelation, she basically says, I know that there's no God but the God of Israel. As in, he set his table so well that she was in awe of that. Let that be a lesson to our future children. Set the table well. Um, but she she sees the glory that Solomon uses, the, the wisdom that is displayed at his uh, presenting the gold, the silver, the the chalices, the dinnerware, the the court that he that he set up, she sees that and recognizes the favor of God, the spirit of God in the midst of the situation, and she comes to faith. We we've seen this before in in Pharaoh recognizing the blessing on Joseph. Unfortunately, that fades after a few generations. And, and here is another story. This, this story of Naaman coming to, see, to get help from Israel is another uh, beginning uh, growth uh, pain, if you will, of God uh, making Israel glorious so that Jesus Christ uh, would show up and that there would be a platform uh, socially and economically for, for the, the gospel to go forth. This is why God brings the empire of Rome to establish roads etc., so that the gospel would, at the right time, be able to spread rapidly. And so, in highlighting the glory of God in Israel, he causes the nations around her to look at her and to recognize God's blessing on them. So, God is at work here, and he gives victory, it says in, in 2 Kings 5.1. The Lord has given victory to Syria, and God is doing this he grants uh, Syria a victory against his own people for the express purpose of them being able to steal away a little girl. Now, again, I mentioned Joseph. This is exactly parallel to this story of Joseph. What uh, Joseph, in re reacting with his brothers, says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The Syrians clearly wish to kill and destroy, yet God temporarily grants them a victory so that in this raid, they take away this little girl and she goes and lives among the Syrians. This is the, the exact same story again. 
She's in captivity like Joseph before her, and she doesn't become bitter, but rather she offers up service to her masters, saying, would that the, my Lord was in Samaria. And, and so she gives this word of blessing, this word of encouragement, this word of promise that there is someone in Israel who can deal with this because God is in Israel. And she opens up this way to the miracle in verse two. Now the Syrians on one of their raids carried off this little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the, the service of Naaman's wife. Exactly the same scenario. Joseph in prison, then Joseph later in Potiphar's house. Likewise, this girl in captivity, she's a prisoner. She's been, she's a prisoner of war. She's been stolen away. And she says, would that my Lord were, were with the prophet in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. She's confident of the fact that this guy, this prophet running around Samaria is able to do something about Naaman's problem. So the king of Syria, exactly like Pharaoh in Egypt before, sends tribute to Yahweh's people. Notice the type of tribute often is important to understand the context behind it. The king of Syria understands Naaman is going to a place where he's a really bad dude. Uh, it would be like sending our president into the Middle East without an envoy, just by himself. They don't like him very much. Or except, you know, sending uh, you know, a leader of like Saudi Arabia into Israel. Naaman has just been killing all these Israelites and the king of Syria understands. If I send Naaman alone, they'll think I'm bringing an army or they'll think I'm uh, attempting to uh, pull some sort of political solution and then you know, bait and switch, bring, bring sword after I declare peace. So the king of Syria knows that there is a serious problem. I must send him with gifts. And so he consults with his court uh, that's implied in the backstory, of course. It doesn't say that. He consults with his court and he gives gold, silver, and clothing to Israel. Now, these are, if you read the, the Pentateuch, these are the raw ingredients for temple worship. These are to glorify the Lord through the prophet. So these, these are to establish temple worship. And you see this over and over again in the raid of Egypt, the plunder of Egypt, that God promises to Abraham all the way back there in Genesis. God promises that Israel will come up from Egypt having gold, uh, jewelry, silver, etc. For what purpose? For the purpose of adorning the temple of God. That the wealth of the nations would become the wealth of the Lord. That is the narrative arc here. That's what's going on. And if you notice the amounts that he sends, this is no small amount of money. 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. Now, I don't know how much a shekel weighs, but gold right now is $1,200 an ounce. So if a shekel of gold uh, is anywhere near an ounce, which I think it is, I think it's even more than that, maybe a little less, it's, this is a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to know the exchange rate. Uh, but here, this guy is sending tons of gold to Israel. This will help them establish worship. Gold is used for every element of the temple, except for one or two things like the bronze lavers, uh, etc. And gold is, gold is the ingredient for glory. The the craftsmen, the master workers who were supposed to make temple furniture, make furniture uh, to be used in the worship of Yahweh, they need this. Without gold, Israel cannot worship the Lord. And so Naaman brings a blessing 
The wealth of the nations comes to the Lord in Naaman showing up. But scripturally speaking, though he's got this wealth that becomes Israel's, he in and of himself doesn't have any gold in his spirit, so to speak. He has absolutely nothing. In fact, in this story, Naaman is presented, he, though he arrives on the scene, he's presented in this story as being completely meritless, completely powerless. It says in verse, uh, sorry, we'll get to that in a second. The, the leprosy that Naaman has is always connected with death and or judgment. Judgment and death are, are often synonymous, and, and leprosy likewise is very closely related to death, and it's also very closely related to the judgment of the Lord. When Miriam speaks against Moses, perhaps you remember the story, Moses, uh, is, the pro- Moses is the leader of the people of God, he's the prophet of his day, and uh, Mir- Miriam and Aaron both conspire together and grumble against Moses and basically attempt to overthrow his rule uh, and, and you know, kind of uh, push him out of his prophet role and his priesthood. And God comes down in a cloud. He commands, he first of all commands Miriam and Aaron to show up at the tabernacle. He comes down and fills his temple with this glory cloud. And then after that glory departs, uh, Miriam is, is completely leprous. Numbers 12, 10 through uh, 12, when the cloud removed from over the temp, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Now this isn't, again, like snow in a good way. That is, the Lord has washed us like snow. This is, the Lord has judged Miriam and she's become like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead. A body that is leprous is living and dead at the same time. This is this is infection of the skin by which bacteria, a particular type of bacteria, is eating away at the flesh. And yet the body is supplying and trying to suppress this disease. The body is still supplying energy to that area. It's the worst form of illness imaginable uh, in ter- in if you don't have a way to remedy it. This involves amputation. This involves uh, strict quarantining and provisioning that it doesn't spread. And the Lord has specific rules concerning what happens to a leper. Those who are lepers have to live away from the people. It's in the commandments of the Lord that if someone becomes leprous, they have to be driven away from the camp. They have to go and leave from the midst of the people. And socially speaking, in terms of a, a social understanding of life, they are dead. They are dead in that they are no longer with us, right? The phrase used to describe someone. They're no longer living. They're no longer with us. Likewise, those who are leprous, they have to go away from the camp. They have to live outside the camp. They can't be in the midst of God's presence. Leviticus 13, 46, the leper shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. Now that that means that the leper cannot come into the temple. He can't offer sacrifices. He's cut off from the presence of the Lord. It says, he is unclean, he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So leprosy is closely related with death. It's a type of death, if you will. It's an it's a aspect of what death would be like for someone. And so Naaman, though he's described as the strong commander of the army, he is absolutely powerless in and of himself. So he is the fleshly carnal man. He is able to wield his power through wielding the sword, but he can't do anything about his own condition. And so Naaman, 
responds in because he's here as the the faithless man the fleshly man he responds in doubt to the articulate clear uh prophecy or command that elisha gives elisha gives him a command and he responds in doubt naaman uh verse one naaman the commander of the army of the king of syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So he was not able to, over time, even remain in his high station. That is, if his leprosy would continue, he would obviously be removed from being the commander of the Syrian army. And likewise, he also would be detestable at court. Leprosy is this terrible disease in which there's open sores and smells, and it's, it's vile to look at. It's it's horrible. If you ever want to be grossed out, do a Google image search for leprosy. It's it's the worst thing imaginable. And and so he is going to be expelled. There is no solution that Naaman has. He is completely powerless to do anything about his condition. This of course is an analogy to the spiritual man. Isn't it plain that the fleshly man can do nothing regarding his spiritual condition? It should be obvious, although there are some who maintain that we can determine in and of our strength to seek after God ourselves. But to me, the scriptures are clear. There is no way for you to deal with the spiritual condition of death that you have. The only remedy is Jesus Christ. And so Naaman, just like those who are spiritually dead, require one who can make them clean. Naaman can't do anything about it. Naaman represents this fleshly and carnal man, and he, like the, uh, the generation that Jesus lived in, was asking for signs. Notice this in his uh, rebuke, so to speak, against Elisha. He responds in faithlessness. He responds in cynicism. Are not Abana and Parfar, I can't say that word, the, the rivers of Damascus better than all the rivers of Israel? He is is seeing by the flesh. He's seeing by the the worldly eye, the natural eye. He thinks that in Damascus, which is the capital of Syria at the time, uh, he thinks that that those rivers are good enough. Now, although he's speaking fleshly, we understand that, no, they're not good enough. They're not the rivers that the Lord has chosen. And so the Lord gives Elisha a particular prophecy, and Naaman says, this is foolishness. I could have washed in uh, Syria. Why did I come this way? His servant says in verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. May we all have people in, like that in our lives. It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. He's given a promise that you will be clean and yet you rebuke it. You turn away from it. This is surely what the unregenerate man does at the free call of the gospel. Many reject and say, well, if God elects, then, then who are we to, you know, how can he have any charge against those who are not chosen? But clearly, it is the opposite. Those who are hard in their hearts do not turn, even though he may call to them freely. And so here Naaman shows that he is just completely naturally minded. He is unable to even believe in the promise that would deal with his condition. So he is, una- he is unable to do anything about it. And he is unable even to believe, and he requires a second testimony. Elisha directs him to wash in the Jordan seven times, seven being a number of total or complete. The Lord made the earth in seven days, uh, six days and one rest. 
describing the completion of God's work. And so seven over and over again, we see it in the, the birds that uh, Noah has to bring in for offerings. We see it in the instructions about particular types of offerings, sin, guilt, etc. The number seven begins to take on the biblical meaning of perfection or completion. And here, Elisha is saying, wash in the Jordan seven total times. Now, this is not magic, but rather this is to teach Naaman something about the way that God operates. When God washes a man, he washes the whole man. He doesn't leave anything unclean. He doesn't leave anything untouched. And so Naaman here is told to wash. And surely washing in the Jordan, we know, is a foreshadowing of Christian water baptism. This is plain. Naaman obeys, of course, we know from our reading, and washes and is cleansed. And after being healed, Naaman sees the glory of the Lord. Remember, think about Naaman's condition. He, first of all, uh, does not believe when uh, he's told this word. And he also responds in faithlessness and cynicism concerning washing in the Jordan, thinking that Israel's this small, weak nation who he's already had military success against. If they're so mighty, why, why are they so weak on the field? And he thinks that the physical river has something to do with it. He is not able to hear by the Spirit of God, and he's not able to do anything about his uh, leprosy. That's his condition before washing. And then look at the change. Verse 15, 2 Kings 5, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He brought his, his posse with him. And he came and stood before him, that is Elisha, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. What a mighty change. He says, so accept these presents for him. Now we know that God, according to the apostles, is not served by human hands. You do not offer up a, gr a grace gift to the Lord after receiving the grace from the Lord. Therefore, Naaman's present is rejected. And rightly so. It would be unfitting for him to receive grace from Yahweh and then pay for it later like you eat a meal and then pay your waiter at the end. This does not take place in the kingdom of God. You are blessed and the blessing stays on you. You do not repay the Lord for his goodness uh, as if you even could. The, the gift that Naaman could have possibly given would have been insignificant compared to the total devastating nature of his leprosy. It would have been a paltry, insulting gift. And so it's rejected. No gift ever given to the Lord is rejected for a wrong reason. Verse 17, then Naaman said, if not, okay, I'll, I'll, you're not going to let me give you the gift. Okay, that's fine. If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. There's some backstory that I think is here in this, in this story that's not presented um, according to the scriptures. Any time that a leper is cleansed from his leprosy, he has to wait a period of seven days, and then the priest will come and look at him again and declare him to be clean. I think it's possible that Naaman had to wait a while before he left, and that would explain him coming to this realization of what I'm about to explain. But why do you think that Naaman wants dirt? A few minutes ago, Naaman thought that the rivers in, Samaria, uh, in Syria were better than the rivers in Israel. And now he's had a change of heart and he wants dirt? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, yes, he's a fleshly, earthly man, but why does he want the dirt in Israel? 
is this a case of he's on a vacation and he wants to really remember the beach, like people bring back shells and sand? I don't think this is a memento, and I think it, although that's a cute idea, I don't think it is. He says, he gives a little indication of his reasoning, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to the Lord. Why did he do that? This is why I believe it's helpful for you to be a diligent student of the scriptures because scripture interprets scripture and you cannot understand the meaning spiritually behind the stories you read. The reason he asks for dirt is found in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Naaman is converted. He becomes a worshiper of Yahweh and and then asks for a special pardon when he has to, because of his role, attend the, the house of whoever, some God who's no God at all, um, and, and he has to bow. He asks for a special provision because he wants the Lord to know, I am worshiping you alone. And so Naaman, probably in his time waiting to be declared fully clean, is instructed in the things of God, and he comes to know the Ten Commandments and so decides to make a special request for earth. And it doesn't explicitly stay that, say, state this, but in 19, Elisha consents. Whereas Elisha didn't receive the gift, Elisha does consent and he does pray to the Lord. And so we can assume he also is given these two mule loads of earth. Uh, Naaman goes from completely faithless, completely unable to do anything about his situation, worshiping all the gods he wants, worshiping the gods of Syria. And after this transition, he is completely clean and he is worshiping Yahweh. He wishes to offer to uh, Yahweh alone. And so Naaman has clearly become a worshiper of Yahweh, and he passes from death to life in this story. He passes from leprosy to cleansing, from faithlessness to faith, from agnosticism or a apathy towards the God of Israel and the things of Israel to worshiping the God of Israel. This is a complete transition. When Naaman is washed, the whole man is washed. Whereas earlier, Naaman thought Syria's rivers were better. Now he wants Israel's earth. That's an amazing thing. So in John 1, 22 through 23, we read regarding John the Baptist, the, the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and they say to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist, as he's baptizing, is doing a particular mission. This isn't John's invention. John didn't, you know, while he was out there chewing on a grasshopper one day, uh, decide, I know what I'll do. I'll start a traveling itinerant ministry around the river of Jordan and wash people to tell them that they need to be holy. That wasn't John's invention. John is following the prophecies of the Lord. He considers himself, and rightly is, a fulfillment of the prophets of old, that is Isaiah, Elijah, and Elisha, that that which they were foreshadowing, the one who would be the forerunner before the Lord. And so John the Baptist is cleansing Israel. It's helpful to understand that if you fall into sin or if a particular number of things happen to you in the Old Covenant, 
before you can approach God again, you must be washed and declared clean by the priest before you can come into the, the inner court of the Lord. And so likewise, John the Baptist, we can understand uh, in terms of temple language, in terms of tabernacle language, that John the Baptist is preparing the people for entering into the temple. He's preparing the people for entering into a interaction with Jesus Christ, God tabernacled among us. His ministry was to highlight the excellence and worth of Jesus Christ, that his ways would be made straight. And he does this by preparing them to encounter the man himself. And so John the Baptist is going around preaching a message of repentance and return to the true worship of Yahweh, not in rule keeping, but rather worshiping from the heart and trusting upon the Lord for their righteousness. And in this place, he is getting people ready for the encounter with Jesus Christ. John 1, 26 through 27, John answered them. They asked him, why do you baptize? So this is giving us a clear indication of his purpose of baptism. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. John the Baptist is saying that he is getting them ready for an interaction. He's getting them ready to receive knowledge of the one who is walking around in Israel, yet hasn't yet been revealed. That is Jesus Christ as he was an adult walking, uh, not yet in his public ministry, not yet revealed to Israel until the proper time where they were ready. John the Baptist is saying, I am getting you ready for the revelation of the one who you need, but don't know. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. It's important to understand the lineage and the chronology that, that goes behind so much of the blessing and um, covenant language of the scriptures. The scriptures and Hebrew thought maintain that those who are earlier in history, that is those who are older, are worthy of honor. And rightly so. This is the way that God has established the world. John the Baptist says that I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus Christ, even though he's an elder to Jesus Christ. He was born after or before Jesus Christ, rather. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. And then he goes on to uh, highlight this and explain this. But his ministry emphasizes these two things. He declares their need of washing. And then he also declares the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That is the glory, worth, and beauty of the man Christ Jesus. John 1, 29 through 31. If you haven't ever um, seen, there's a, a, a few DVDs that I would recommend. The Gospel of John on DVD. I don't know who the publisher is, but I know it's just called The Gospel of John. It is probably my favorite Jesus movie, so to speak, um, m mostly because it's long. Uh, but it's just, they just read through the book of John, and there's a narrator who is uh, John, uh, an actor who plays John the, the Apostle, and he's just reading. And every once in a while, it switches to the characters speaking, and, and it's acted out. It's well done. But one of my favorite scenes in that DVD is this encounter here. And I love imagining it by a holy imagination, asking the Holy Spirit to help me understand what's going on in this passage. I, I really think you need to take time while you're reading the scripture to get engaged in the story. Don't just read and just, you know, you're looking at Facebook here, you're looking at Twitter there, you're making dinner, okay, scanning the page. That's not going to do it. You need to be brought into an encounter, and this is one of my favorite in all the scriptures. Imagine with me for a minute. You're John the Baptist. You've known Jesus Christ your whole life because he was your cousin. 
you maybe have seen him every few years at different festivals when all of Israel was commanded to come together. So there's a very high likelihood that John the Baptist, though it doesn't say that in the scriptures, knew Jesus from the day of his birth, so to speak. Um, Jesus uh, was, was his cousin in, in the flesh. And John the Baptist proclaims that he doesn't know who the one is. He's saying that there's someone who's coming after me, and you, you all don't know who he is. I'm not sure who he is. Uh, he doesn't have an inkling. And he's been looking for the Messiah. His entire earthly ministry, John the Baptist at this time is probably 32 years old. If Jesus begins his public ministry at 30, John the Baptist uh, is older slightly than Jesus. So maybe 31, maybe 32. He's a full blown adult, older than many of you. And he has been looking for, for his entire life, that moment when the Lord would fulfill the promise that he get, gives to John, the one whom you see the Holy Spirit descend on and remain. That is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That is what John's looking for this, his entire life. And he's in this encounter and upon the banks of the River Jordan, he sees Jesus Christ coming on the horizon. And the Holy Spirit is opening John's eyes. The final fulfillment of all the promises that John has heard, the Messiah come in the flesh. It's got to be way better than a man waiting for his bride to come through the doors on a wedding day. John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ in the flesh, and he recognizes him as the Lamb of God. And he declares, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. It's a wonderful moment. It's one of my favorites in all the scripture to meditate on because it is the unveiling of God's final redemption for his people. Here he is. This is he, verse 30, of whom I said, after he comes, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Again, remember what I said about uh, chronology in, in lineage in Hebrew mind. If you're older then you are more honored, you're more mature, you're the one who blesses instead of receives a blessing. You're older, you're to be, to be honored. And John the Baptist says, even though he was born after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist is declaring Jesus Christ is eternally existent and preeminent above all others. He's the firstborn of creation, not just born in time. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That's the reason why John the Baptist is baptizing. You might even think of it comically that he dunks and then looks, nope. Dunks, looks, nope. I don't think it worked that way. But John the Baptist is wanting to find the Messiah, and he finally one day sees him. And then upon seeing him, he gives his testimony. Jesus Christ is eternally existent. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Oh, the precious worth of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of God for the sins of the world. He is the only solution to all the world's problems, and John the Baptist sees him in the flesh at that moment. What a glorious minute. John testifies that Jesus Christ existed and he's the eternal existent son of God who through the incarnation stepped into the world. Jesus Christ did not begin to exist at the moment of the Holy Spirit's overshadowing of Mary. He is eternally begotten from the Father, as we say every week. And John the Baptist sees divine human, one hypostasis 
coming upon the earth. He is walking among us. John's ministry was to bring Israel into the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he does this two ways, by first testifying uh, at the moment when John, uh, Jesus comes, and also washing them, making them ceremonially clean for the true temple who is coming upon the earth. We likewise, coming after Jesus, coming after John the Baptist, even to this day, require a washing from our sins. And this is what the doctrine of Christian water baptism is. You are guilty before the holy God. You have transgressed his laws. You have offended his divine majesty and mercy, and you are removed from him. You have made a separation between God and yourself through your multitudinous iniquities. And yet he offers you a free, completely, wonderfully free gift of redemption that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. And through that, we understand through the writings of the apostles that we must, in following Jesus Christ's law, be washed for the remissions of our sins. We've been washed from dead works, those who are, are Christians now. That's the call to us, the law that Jesus gives. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Baptize them all in my name and make disciples out of them. That's what Jesus is saying to the apostles in the Great Commission. He's sending them on this mission. He's given them instructions. They're going. Now we're a part of that. When we come to Christ, we join the church, we join the community of the true Israel through water baptism. And likewise, we also partake in the gifts that are afforded to the people of God. But in the midst of understanding baptism, you must not know, or you must not believe that that water baptism only has to do with that moment in which you go under the water. Water baptism contains a meaning for the entire part of your life. Bringing into remembrance the, the day that you were baptized is a vital and important thing to do because it reminds you that you needed washing. And it also reminds you that you are washed. You have been cleansed. We're to be like John, of course, making straight the way of the Lord. We who've been washed are now on, in the process of washing others and taking the love of Christ to the world and be, bringing them into the fold of the redeemed. But we must remember that we were washed. In Jesus' uh, day, he had some apostles. Uh, we, we didn't read this story today, but Jesus had some apostles, and he was... Uh, being, being prepared for himself as well as preparing his uh, apostles for the experience of his death. And before he uh, serves them at the table, the, the communion that, that we know, that the, before he institutes the meal of the Eucharist, he comes and ceremonially washes, really washes all of the, the disciples. Of course, he says that he's already washed them or brought them into his name by the speaking that he has done with them. That is through living with him for those three years, they have heard and they have been cleansed. And yet Jesus comes and he puts a towel or a covering around himself. He dresses like a servant and he says, what I'm about to do, you won't understand now, but you will later, of course, when the Holy Spirit comes and reveals. But he, he, he dresses like a servant and gets down on his knees and he comes to each one of the disciples and he washes their feet. And what does Peter say? Peter thinks, 
He, he, again, the fleshly man, he says, Lord, you, you should not be doing this. I, I, I am less than you. I shouldn't be washed by you, but rather I should be serving you. And Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share or part or inheritance with me. Unless you're washed by Jesus Christ, you have nothing to do with him. And so we, we see this vitality of being washed from our sins. It means not only to be cleansed from the weight and the iniquity that we all have before we are brought near to God, but also that we are set apart for a particular function. Those who are ceremonially washed are to be brought into worship. They're be, to be brought into the temple. Understanding your baptism, rightly felt, rightly experienced, rightly remembered, is to remember that you are designated for a function. You are to stand in the house of your God and worship him. You aren't to just come to church on Sundays, worship the Lord, and then on Monday return to carnal living, concerned about the things of this earth, concerned about the cares of this world. You are to be a living worshiper every day of your life. And that's what the doctrine of water baptism says concerning how you're to live as a Christian. You are not to forget your need to be cleansed and the fact that you have been cleansed. And this is what we believe takes place when we're baptized. That's why I think baptism is the first step in discipleship. I think it's clear from the scriptures that it is. And it's why remembering what the Lord has done for you is so vitally important. It's not enough just to be water baptized. You have to also bring to mind your baptism. And we do this by feasting on Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would convince us if we are unwilling to hear you, that we need to be cleansed. I I ask, Lord, that you would convince us of our need for your washing. Deliver us, O Lord, from the foolish ways of the fleshly and carnal man. Give to us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Help us to know that you are true when you say, if you wash a part of us, you make all of us clean. Help us to see the totality of what baptism signifies and help us to experience the the daily remembrance of being set apart to you. That wonderful day when we first obeyed your voice in being baptized, when we first were given the, the wonderful gift of being part of your redeemed community. Give to us, Lord, divine and sweet memories of those days. Help us to remember the fresh work that you did in that moment. But Lord, also help us to see that we are clean before you. Though we still sin, though we still make mistakes, Lord, we are positionally clean before you. And help us, Lord, to see our lives as designated for a function that we would stand in your temple all of our days. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.